Today we are in the book of Jeremiah, familiar and comforting words from uh, chapter 29, will be in verses 10 through 14. This Advent, as you know, we are studying the Old Testament, popping out of Mark for just a bit, as we think about what it means that Christ has come into the world. This morning, as you have seen, our focus is on hope. So Jeremiah 29, 10 through 14. A favorite Christmas carol that we sing is O Little Town of Bethlehem. This uh, carol was written by Phillips Brooks, who was an Episcopalian priest in Philadelphia in the mid-1800s. He and his siblings grew up learning a hymn a week because their father wanted them to recite and memorize as many hymns as they could. His father had a book that listed all of the hymns and Brooks, when he was small, memorized over 200 hymns as a child. So as an adult, it would make sense that as he traveled to the Middle East at Christmas time on a pilgrimage, that a hymn would naturally come to his mind about the experience. He wrote this piece for Sunday school kids in his own church, and A Little Town of Bethlehem was first sung in December 1868. He had no children of his own, but he had a deep love for them. And even as a bishop, when he would wear robes, he would be found with groups of children in his office, playing with the toys that he kept with them, uh, for them in there. He wanted children to understand the town of Christ's birth as he had seen it on Christmas Eve. As he looked over the city of Bethlehem at night while on horseback, he saw shepherds keeping their flocks by night. He went to a procession where people in, uh, reenacted the nativity story with music. And so from the images that he saw, we sing of the stillness. We sing that the silent stars pass overhead while people are asleep, unaware that a child has been born. A line in this song has always been meaningful to me. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. I picture the, the rays of the star beaming down to the manger where the baby lay. They're pinpointing not just the town, of Bethlehem where he has been born, but also on Jesus himself. That in this place, on this evening, there's a crossroads of humanity where all of the dreams and the anxieties of those who came before, of those who will come after, intersect in a powerful way. It's as though Brooks understood and communicated so beautifully the truth of what occurred in Bethlehem that night, thus inviting us to see and to know it too as we sing it each year. Today, as you know, we're focusing on hope. And we chose this scripture out of Jeremiah because people then and people now need hope. And God shows us so powerfully what hope in him looks like. These verses are not explicitly about Christ, but we know that the Bible is a whole story given to us um, as God, Son, and Spirit, 
as we understand for our church community and for ourselves as individuals. So let's read Jeremiah 29, beginning at verse 10. For thus says the Lord, only when Babylon's 70 years are completed will I visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For surely I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans for your welfare and not for harm, to give you a future with hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. When you search for me, you will find me if you seek me with all your heart. I will let you find me, says the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, says the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Let's pray for a second. God, may you be glorified as we open your word. May your Holy Spirit speak richly, God, to us. Amen. We know more about Jeremiah than any other prophet in the Old Testament. His book is the largest in the Bible, and he reveals more about himself than almost any other writer, maybe besides Paul. Jeremiah was strong. He was sensitive. He was introspective. He ministered during tumultuous years, and he processed his feelings about what he witnessed as he wrote, showing us who he was. He did not have many friends. He was not allowed to marry, so it made me think that maybe it was that when he took pen to paper that he could freely process his feelings and express himself. Jeremiah lived in a time of transition in the history of Israel. He he saw many regime changes, multiple kings. He saw the southern kingdom of Judah lose its independence and become a province of Babylon. He's a significant figure for us because he helped those who listened to him survive what they were forced to endure, reminding them of God's truth and mercy on which to rebuild their lives. Jerusalem ultimately fell to Babylon in 587 BC. And when that happened in that time, there were two main groups who were dispersed. Those in positions of power and privilege were sent to Babylon, and the rest of the people became refugees in places like Egypt and other surrounding countries. Jeremiah 29 is a letter that is addressed to the first group of exiles, those who were privileged. But they suffered violent forced migration and became cheap labor for their captors. It's important for us to understand what happens before verse 10. So there are three things that the Lord wants the people to know. One, it was he who sent them into exile to Babylon. Two, they should settle in and build houses and plant gardens and start families. Three, they should work for the good in the city, in the place where they find themselves. To this community who has been traumatized, who has lost everything they hold dear, the Lord is telling them how to move on, not physically, but spiritually, relationally. According to the World Economic Forum today, one in every 113 people on the planet is now a refugee. There are people from all over the globe who are either displaced within their own country. That's the largest group, people who are displaced in their own country. 
the next group are people who have fled to another country to save their lives because of persecution or death. And the next group of people are those who have gone someplace for a better life. Jesus himself was a refugee to Egypt for a time because of what was going on with Herod. It is a life that is foreign to many of us, but is a reality for so many today. I want to just highlight the topic of refugees quickly, because even though those experiences today are vastly different than Jeremiah's time, we have a bit of a picture of what it means. We have seen the pictures. We pray for refugees. We might even send money or do some work with people who uh, are helping refugees. We understand a little bit from the news that we watch what it means. In this Uh, chapter, God's people have nothing of their own. But God is clearly telling them, this is not a time for pity. This is a time for you to live and to know me. So as we look at the verses today, there are three aspects of hope that we want to see from God's perspective. Meant for Jeremiah's context, they transfer to us, for anyone to whom God might be speaking about what it means to have hope. So the first truth comes from verse 10. The hope that God gives happens in his time, not ours. This is a continuation of a thought happening from verse 8. Because false teachers had begun to tell the people, you know, this exile business, it's not going to last very long. I think, you know, maybe two years at tops. It's going to be short. You're going to get to go home soon. We've, you know, talked about it. We've prayed about it. God has told us this. So the people had begun to think that their stay in Babylon was temporary. Here, God is giving them the news that actually they're going to be there for 70 years. 70 years they're going to be there. God's hope happens in his time. And no one can say when circumstances will be different. While it might not have seemed like it at the time or maybe even to us, God is helping them by telling them this information. It's better for us when we know something, even when the news is going to be difficult. This way we can know what our strategy is going to be, how it is that we're going to move forward. For uh, this reason, it's imperative for us to discern then what is from God and what is from not. You see, I think all the time we hear messages from people who say that they're from God, who tell us things, preachers even, maybe people uh, that we, that, um, are, who are supposed to be bringing wise counsel, and it might sound very good. You'll be rich if you believe in God. Bad things won't happen to you if you have faith. You can do whatever you want because God loves you. Sometimes we might even listen to the counsel of our friends when we're in a hard time. And our friends may say, oh, this is going to pass quickly. Or God is doing this because X, Y, Z. Who might try to make us feel better, but maybe God has no intention of ending the thing that's happening in our life anytime soon. You see, God is trying to bring correction here to his people. And we ourselves have to be careful not to listen to something that isn't really hope. You see, hope comes from God, not from other people telling us what is actually going to happen. We always have to check what we hear against what God is saying to us uniquely and against Scripture and the Holy Spirit who brings guidance to us. Sometimes we want to hear what's an easier path. 
but we have to make sure it's true. But still, 70 years. How can that even be hope? Some of the people who are there then are not going to get to go back home. They're going to die in Babylon. So we might ask, why, Lord? What was so bad that this had to happen, that it had to be this long? It's difficult to know why God gives this time frame. Partially, it's because they have been in rebellion against him. There are repercussions for sin, even when there is forgiveness. Sometimes we have to live through what we have done and experience those things. God seems to want them to listen. And this is a formative time for them as a nation. He wants them to build back their lives while also building what they lost with him. This is rough, but he's telling them, I have you. I have you in my hands. I just don't want you to rush back to that place where you were. So often when we're in a difficult situation, we want to go back to that time frame before the rough thing happens. And God does not allow us to do that. Listen to what uh, Spurgeon says about this chapter. He says, The prophet Jeremiah had the double duty of putting down the people's false hopes and sustaining their right expectation. He therefore plainly warned them against expecting more than God had promised. And he aroused them to look for the fulfillment of what he actually had promised. See, the people here are encouraged to not lose hope. God is telling them, hope's going to come. It's just going to be later than you think. I don't know what it is that you've been holding out hope for in your life. How long you've been waiting for the Lord to give you something that he has promised to give you what it is that you feel like you most need, to bring back your life to the place where you want it to be after sin. But know that God is faithful and will bring about what is promised in his time. Secondly, God wants his people to build their hope on what he has to give and not what they themselves want. This is at the heart of verse 11. God, who sees the huge map of our lives, for our future is directing the immediate, but also what's going to happen later on. But often we base our hopes on what it is that we see and know here. But he has concrete hopes for those who follow him. This is discouraging news that they can't go home for 70 years, but he wants them to trust in his goodness. They may think they're done, but they're not. About nine years ago, I went on a personal quest to change things in our lives. There were some things that I thought weren't really working out the way that I wanted to. And so I had a great plan. It wasn't premeditated. It was just kind of something that happened and grew over time in my mind that I started to put into plan. I had a great plan of where Mark should work and where Olivia should go to school, and where we should live. And it all made perfect sense. Kind of like one of those shape sorting cubes, I was working hard to make sure that everything would neatly fit into place. Except nothing went as I planned. Not the job, not the school, not the move. It didn't matter how much I tried to put the circle shape into the moon thing. It didn't matter how much I tried to do it. God said no to every single thing. And as I grappled with this disappointment, I had to acknowledge two things that were very hard for me. 
One was that I didn't actually know what was best. I hate that. Second, that I was operating out of fear, not hope. I looked at our life through fear, and I saw how I could make changes so I would stop being afraid. So I would get the things that I thought we needed to have. My expectations and longings for our life weren't happening, so I tried to create it on my own. But think about Phillips Brooks again and his line. How our hopes and our fears are very tied together. In our anxiety, when things don't happen the way that we want, we can choose to move forward, not thinking that God already has it. He's already at work. He's already working to make your life better. He's not always clear with us. He doesn't always say, and then this, and then this, and then this. But what I learned is that silence means stop. Stop working, Colleen, for something that isn't going to happen. Be still for once, please. Trust that I am working You see, verse 11 is a verse that we love to quote, how God has our best in mind and we have a future with a hope, but so often we go our own way because things aren't happening fast enough or because we're afraid and life is passing us by or so we think. Think about a time when someone did something so kind for you so nice for you. They had you directly in their mind. They thought about who you uniquely were. They acted in a way that blessed you. They brought you joy and they connected you together with themselves. See, that's how God is with us. He thinks about you all the time and is intentionally and how it is that he's trying to help you because we belong to him. In big and small ways, he's building his kingdom with our lives all the time. And he holds everything together and brings us hope every day. So are there places in your life today where you're missing what is already laid out for you because you're busy making your own plans? Are there areas where you're really afraid that God is not working fast enough? Or giving you quite what it is that you think you want. Where are you having a difficult time trusting the Lord? And how might these words from Jeremiah change your viewpoint a bit? The last idea is found in verses 12 through 14. Hoping God is based on our interaction with him. It's humbling that he has a plan for each one of us. But how do we find it? Well, Jeremiah says it plainly through the Lord's own words. Call on me, God says. Pray to me. Search for me. Seek me with your whole heart. These sound like words of Jesus, don't they? Because this is where our hope really lies. This is the central idea of the whole chapter. Throughout history, we see God's people often focus in on what we want and us, 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 us. And yet, really, our focus needs to be on the God who made us, but sometimes we forget. We forget that it is in the seeking that we find. Our hearts are so attuned to being happy and comfortable and fulfilled that we forget that God is the object of our faith. You see, these people wanted to return home, but God was telling them to return to him, that he is their home, that no matter where it is that they go, that he is always there for them that that's more important, to make him their hope. 
He's their constant in the ever-swirling world of change, the one we cling to. You see, we exercise hope in our lives all the time, although we may not call it that. Praying to God is an act of hope. Coming to worship is an act of hope that God loves us and cares about us and will meet us and will speak to us. Hope is telling our friend who doesn't know about him who he is. Hope is having peace when our houses might burn down, when we're evacuated, when we can barely breathe, when we don't know what to do or what might come over the mountain. Hope is building lives and planting gardens and having families. Hope is believing that God is right beside us no matter what. There's hope that life will continue to grow. I'm not saying this is easy. There are moments and seasons of our lives where it may be hard for us to put one foot in front of the other. And Jeremiah understands this. He had a rough life. Troubles were compounded upon one another and people hated his guts. But still, he hoped in God by serving when things were terrible. And like the prophet, we can express our strong feelings. We can pray through our pain. We can cry and lament. We can exalt with joy. We can ask for help when we need it. We do not live as people who have no hope. Hope is not a feeling. It is exercising faith in the one who always does good for those who know him. So, hope cannot be rushed. It is not something we ourselves make, and it is found by seeking the Lord. In Advent, we celebrate the hope of the world born in a manger. He is Emmanuel, God with us. Part of the promise that God was making here in Jeremiah was so much bigger than they even could have imagined and realized much later. You see, what the people really needed was a king who could truly care for them. A ruler they could look to in times of plenty and in times of trouble. One who would inspire hope with his words and model a life of integrity with his life. One who would ultimately give his life up so that all might live by his power and grace. So this Advent... May we all have relentless hope in the Christ who has come. And may he make us brave as we wait in anticipation for him to come again. And rescue us from this life that sometimes feels like exile. That sometimes feels like we are so far from where it is that we are meant to be. Let us pray.